suburban eastern Australia, an environment that has, over time, evolved some extraordinarily unique groups of Homo sapiens. But today, we observe a small tribe akin to a group of meerkats that gather together atop a small mound to watch, question, and discuss the current events of their city, their country, and their world at large. Let's listen keenly and observe this group fondly known as the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. Well, we're back. Yes, at a break. So two weeks since the last time we spoke with you. This is a podcast where we talk about news and politics and sex and religion, dangerous topics. And we're not going to let you down with a dangerous topic in Stan Grant and more racism tonight. We're going to go where angels fear to tread. I'm Trevor, a.k.a. The Iron Fist. With me as always, the velvet glove himself, Scott. G'day, Trevor. G'day, Joe. G'day, listeners. How are you all? We are all well. Well, actually, I've got a little bit of head cold, but nothing to speak of. And Joe, the tech guy, is with us. Joe, how are you? Evening all. Mm, So... We'll talk about a little bit of social stuff, first of all, what we've been up to, and then get into the meat of the podcast. It seemed to me, you know, there's not a lot happening worldwide. I say that when there's a war raging in the Ukraine, and it looks like it potentially escalating into World War Three, and we're having major battles with our major trading partner. But, you know, on the domestic front and stuff, it's the same old, same old, so... Thank goodness for Stan Grant and his his sort of comments about what's happened to him and a few other things. So, right, before we get on to that, it has been two weeks. One thing that did happen to me on Mother's Day, actually, I don't know if you guys were there when I was telling the story, but I was invited to a function down at Coolangatta and it's like 35, 40 people from the building that we're staying in regularly. And as I'm sitting down talking, it's one of those situations where you can really only talk to the person in front of you and beside you. Pleasant enough conversation and, you know, older crowd. And then and then Ray mentions to this other guy, I think his name was Keith. Can't quite be sure what his name was. Keith, tell us about your time as an Anglican pastor. So, dear listener, <laughs> I, was, really? I was actually sitting opposite a retired Anglican pastor from Bridge, Brisbane Diocese. And uh, so that was interesting. He spoke about his experience and he quite enjoyed the job. Like he had some job as an administrative role a government job, just decided you'd like to be a pastor. But the interesting thing to come out of it was how small the congregation was. Really only about 70 people were regular attenders of a service. I'd actually say that's large, certainly compared to the UK. Mm, maybe. And uh, and then we were talking, he's describing how you're really running a small business and oh, we got to talking about income. And really from 70 regular people in the congregation is generating about 300,000 a year. Which Just over 4,000 a head. Yes, from which he would pay himself a wage and then other expenses for the activities that the church did in the area. So that was interesting, but get yourself 70. And you have to pay your franchise fee back up to the head church. Yeah, well, I don't know how much they transferred to them, but, but there you go. That's just interesting little tidbit of information, get yourself a congregation of 70 people in the Anglican church and you can have a small business with a, a, a gross income of 300000 Scott, there we go. Yeah. We've, 
got about regularly 50 to 60 contributors to this podcast. I can tell you we're getting nowhere near 300,000. That's a year, no. Yeah, instead of 4,000 per annum, it's more like 50 or $60 per annum, but that's mm-hmm. right. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah, he thought that the that the congregation was sort of falling off over time because of Sunday trading at the shops and also Sunday sport gave people other options and, uh, yeah, they had other things to do. They weren't as committed as they used to be. And I said to him, well, it's Sunday and it's Mother's Day. Are you going to church later today? He said, no, I'm going to give it a miss this week. So there we go. (laughs) That was good. And the other thing that happened was last weekend I was at Felons and I had my Noosa Temple of Satan T-shirt on and sat down at the table, barely sat down, and this guy came up, tapped me on the shoulder and said, Hi, Trevor. Love the work that you're doing with the Noosa Temple of Satan. Just want to say congratulations. Keep up the good work. That was nice. So, it was, yeah. Yeah. So that's what happened to me since I've last seen you. Hello in the chat room to Alison and also to Alison's mum, Bev, who watches or listens as Alison's watching. So hello, Bev. Glad you enjoy the podcast. And also Andrew and that's all we've got so far. So. If you're in the chat room, say hello and contribute. One other sort of housekeeping thing is Scott Landon Hardbottom is yes. coming to town. Mm-hmm. Yes. After a four-year absence, Landon will make his triumphant return. Bring mm. gifts, apparently. So. Yeah, 29th of July. So <laughs> keep the 29th of July free. Details to come closer to the time. Right. That's enough of the... Uh, Housekeeping, if you like. If if it's Landon, surely it needs to be gifts of cocaine. <laughs> I don't think he does actually do that. No, I don't know. Or, or torture <laughs> weapons or something like that. <laughs> yes. Hello, Ian, in the chat room as well. Yeah, 29th of July. Keep that free. All right. We're going we're gonna to be talking about race and Stan Grant. But I think we need some warm-up exercises, gentlemen, before we get into that. <laughs> Time for some razy lacism. So I thought we would do a few definitions, look at a quick look at some systemic racism, and then who better to explore racism with than Israel Folau, and he'll get a mention. And then we'll get to Stan Grant. So, yeah, all right. Just a reminder, racism. There's a dictionary I got from Wikipedia, not from Wikipedia, from Google, which I think was talking about Oxford languages was the origin, and it says racist. Characterised by or showing prejudice, discrimination or antagonism against a person or people on the basis of their membership of a particular racial or ethnic group, typically one that is a minority or marginalised. So you've got to show prejudice, discrimination or antagonism against a group. Simply just discussing isn't racism. We'll do a lot of discussing. I was going to say, that's a microaggression, though. Yeah, well, it might be, but it's not racism. Right. And this came about because I wasn't there, but my wife was at a function, and somehow the topic of skin colour came up and the reluctance of people to acknowledge different skin colours of different people because it was seen as a bit of a touchy subject, a bit of a taboo subject of, of just commenting about oh, somebody's got lovely dark skin or something like that. That was seen as being potentially racist, 
again, I wasn't there at the conversation, but that's a sort of general topic I wanted to quickly explore and say that sort of commenting on somebody's skin colour, if it's not in a negative way, just in an observational way, doesn't sound like racism to me. And I was reminded, do you guys remember with Harry and Megan? Mm. And back in the Oprah was, interview. Mm-hmm. Yes. So it was going to be announced that they were engaged, I think. And in the Oprah interview, Megan revealed that there had been conversations in the royal family about how dark the skin of a baby might be, a child. And Oprah was taken aback and clarified, really, you know, about how dark your baby is going to be? And uh, Megan replied, potentially, and what that would mean or look like. So that was sort of seen as a taboo topic. I I saw commentary at the time of the Oprah interview of black Mm. people saying, we have the same conversation as black people, going, I wonder how black or not black, you know, between one... If you have somebody who's very dark and somebody who's less dark, then mm. the conversation happens about what colour will the baby be? Yes. Will it be darker or lighter brown? Yes. And, you know, if you've got someone on the one side of the family who's got sort of pale, freckled skin that sunburns quickly, You mean example, a ginger? Yes, or a ginger, yes. Often I've found that ginger people are really resentful of their skin <laughs> and wish they had lovely olive skin that tanned and didn't burn. And it's not, I can't think of an exact instance, but I'm sure I've heard of where people in uh, gingers would say, oh, you know, say a ginger was marrying somebody with lovely dark olive skin. They'd say, oh, gee, I hope the baby gets the lovely olive skin, for example. It's not seen as, it's not a racist thing to just comment about skin colour, point I want to make. So people get hung up on these subjects as if it's merely talking about them makes you a racist. It's all part of our warm-up exercises. Why, we're just talking about things and it's all okay. Relax out there. Andrew says in the chat room, that's a beautiful amputation. Also seemed a difficult physical observation to make. If in doubt, don't go there. I don't know that you talk about an amputation. You might talk about the stump. Yeah. Amputation's the... The, the operation, isn't it? I, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, uh, if you look at children, uh, my daughter grew up with uh, a very close family friend who is of Indian heritage, and she commented that she really liked him because he was like chocolate. Right. Yep. It, it was just a, a naive comment about how he was different from us. There you go. And nothing was meant by it. She loved him, yeah, like a brother. She still does. Mm. Mm. Uh, so I, I think, yes, people can use it to be nasty, but I don't think you have to assume that somebody making a comment is being nasty. Yes. And you might avoid a topic because you think potentially it's something, an area where somebody doesn't want to go to. So, for example, I have an amputation story, Andrew, that works mm-hmm. in quite nicely with this. Because as you may know, I've been doing some ocean swimming lately and I've conned my wife to come and do it as well. And she's worried about sharks and she insists that I swim on the ocean side and she's on the shore side. 
<laughs> the theory being that if a shark comes shark in from deep, first. Of, from deep of water, <laughs> it's, it's going to take me first. And That's anyway, true love for you. That, that is. Anyway, it's a bit of a running joke with us over the last couple of weeks. And we visited Brother Samael Demogorgon the other day on his island retreat. And as we were walking around the island, this other couple came along. And of course, it's a small island where everybody knows everybody. And so we stopped and said hello. And this of the couple, the guy had obviously an amputated leg at about the kneecap level. You could, you know, it wasn't covered with his pants. It was a, you could see the metal apparatus that he was walking on. And so as curious as we were as to what happened to his leg, that's one where you wouldn't say, gosh, I've noticed you've got an amputated leg. How did that happen? Yeah. Unless you knew somebody really well, because who knows, it might be regurgitating some traumatic car accident or illness or, you know, it's understandable that you would avoid the topic directly with somebody unless you knew mm. them quite well. And anyway, we, as we departed from them, we were walking along with Robin and we said, so what happened to that guy's leg? Robin said, shark attack. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, this guy's from South Africa. And apparently there were three kids in his grade who had missing limbs from shark attacks. Quite the thing in South Africa. Really? In that era. There you go. So, yeah, just uh, ironic that Zena and I have been swimming in a formation to avoid a shark attack. I'm poo-pooing the idea. And then we met a guy who actually lost a leg through a shark attack. There you go. Yeah. Mm. Right. Moving on. Oh, just... Um, basically from the book that was a, about Harry and Meghan and the author said is that, that it was Prince Charles who said it about the baby and uh, just from the article here it says, what I'm saying is that on the morning that the engagement of Harry and Meghan was announced, in a very kind of benign way, Prince Charles started to muse on what their future grandchildren might look like. I mean, here's this beautiful biracial American woman and the world's most famous redhead. I'm a grandfather. Of course, we all do this. You know, you speculate on that. But it was turned into something very toxic. It was weaponized, really, by the men in grey who run the palace organisation. So there we go. That was that one, a little warm-up exercise. And oh, just the other thing... Have you guys, do you guys know that there's an Israel Folau documentary on ABC iView? I did hear something about mm -hmm. it, but I haven't really gone mm. to look at it. So I watched the first episode. Given we spent a lot of time on Israel Folau, worth, watch, mm. worth watching. Very interesting. He's Folauzy. Yes, he's very Christian, obviously, and just the way he, he the, his Christianity overtook him and also the influence of his father, which was normal in that sort of culture that he came from. That was the other thing that came from this was just the cultural things that were in play with him. And uh, and also, you know, there were a lot of sort of Islander Polynesians who were interviewed and making the point that there's a lot of them in rugby because the game suits the typical Polynesian Islander physique of very strong, explosive, powerful men, and uh, hence why 40% of professional union players were sort of Polynesian Islander heritage. And mm. this was all discussed very matter-of-factly. Yes, we are mostly strong, explosive runners, 
who can hit hard and this game suits us. And that was said in a way that's not racist. Like that was just a generalisation, not meant to cover, you know, 100% of Islander people, but on the whole, you know, a representation of a predisposition of that type of people. Not meant Mm. to be racist, but just an observation. Nobody's in uproar about, oh, generalisation about physical attributes of these people. It's just an observation and a fair one to make. So, right. Okay. Oh, what have we got here? Andrew Jackson says, I met someone with a mastectomy and someone with shark-initiated amputation in nudist context. I had conversations about the amputation in the context, hang on, South Africa. All right. He's got a story for us there at some stage. All right. Funny where things lead you to. Let's Stan Grant. He has resigned from, well, temporarily at least for the moment, his position on Q and A and his other positions. And here's a little bit of his farewell statement on Q and A from the other night. Many of you would know by now that I'm stepping away for a little while, but. I'll be okay. Please send that support and care to those of my people and all people who feel abandoned and alone, who are wondering whether they have a place in this country and who don't have my privileges. To those who have abused me and my family, I would just say, if your aim was to hurt me, well, you've succeeded. And I'm sorry. I'm sorry that I must have given you so much cause to hate me so much to target me and my family to make threats against me. I'm sorry. And that's what Yinjimara means. It means that I'm not just responsible for what I do, but for what you do. It's not just a word. It is sacred. It is what it means to be Wiradjuri. It is the core of my being. It is respect. It is respect that comes from the earth we are born into, from God by army. If I break that, I lose who I am. I am down right now. I am. But I'll get back up and you can come at me again and I'll meet you with the love of my people. My people can teach the world to love. As Martin Luther King Jr. said of his struggle, we will wear you down with our capacity to love. Don't mistake our love for weakness. It is our strength. We have never stopped loving and fighting for justice and truth. I fear the media does not have the love or the language to speak to the gentle spirits of our land. I'm not walking away for a while because of racism. We get that far too often. I'm not walking away because of social media hatred. I need a break from the media. I feel like I'm part of the problem. And I need to ask myself how or if we can do it better. To my people, I have always wanted to represent you with pride. I know I might disappoint you sometimes, but in my own little way, I've just wanted to make us seen. And I'm sorry that I can't do that for a little Hmm. I noticed he was invoking a white person's God. Yes. Yes, I noticed that as well. And a sort of a spirituality is strong with this 
with this one in terms mm-hmm. of uh, from the earth. There's a lot of woo when it comes to not only in that statement but just other things that he says and spirituality and a passing on through generations and a acquired heritage, very spiritual sort of way of looking at his identity. And Scott, have you seen that before? Had seen parts of it but never a whole lot. <laughs> Any thoughts that you're brave enough to let us know or do you want me to just keep rabbiting on? <laughs> I I don't I haven't seen any of the abuse or anything like that that he's copped. Hmm. I'm not a I'm not a real social media person or anything like that. Like I've got a Twitter account, but I don't go on there. I've got a Facebook account, which I go on to a couple of times a week. I haven't seen him get abused. I couldn't comment on that. If he was actually abused and all that type of thing, I think that he'd be better off standing his ground and that sort of stuff and just saying, well, fuck you, I'm not going anywhere. I um, imagine it would wear you down, though. I, no doubt he has copped a lot of shit. I've I'm no sure doubt about that. I've no it, doubt about it, that. And I think and I think that Sky News is probably behind a fair bit of it too, you know, mm. because there was some nonsense that was that – during the coronation, they apparently counted up the number of times that Stan Grant was mentioned and all that type of thing. Mm. So, you know, I don't know. I've no doubt he has copped a hell of a lot of shit. But I just think to myself, you're probably better off standing your ground and telling people to go get stuffed. But anyway, I don't know what it would be like to walk in Stan Grant's shoes. You know, I am a cis white <coughs> gay man you know Mm. it's i don't know what it's like to be anything different i was born this way and all that type of thing so as a result i couldn't judge that i imagine he's probably has been worn down over time and that type of thing it's just one of those things i don't know you know i could understand him being very pissed off but I do think it was probably better off if he'd stayed there and fought it out rather than actually walk away. I, mm. I just feel he's given up more than anything. Oh, no way. He's I, Honestly, I think he wants to come back as a politician. Oh, yeah. There's I think, no he's, doubt about I think that. he's looking at his, his options. Yeah, I, there's no doubt about that, and he, I wouldn't he, be surprised if he tries to get something going with the Greens at yeah. some point. Well, he definitely would be aiming for a seat on The Voice, for example. Yeah, for sure. I, I think he's angling for some sort of political role. A cushy government role. I don't know. Just some something like that I think is what he would be looking for. But, mm. you know, the, so the things that struck me about it was, you know, sacred core of my being from earth, from God, Lots of woo in that and lots of vagueness on things. He says things that are so contradictory and, and silly, really. Things like, you know, I'm not just responsible for what I do, but for what everybody else does, what you do as well. Mm. Honestly, how can you be responsible for what other people do? Uh, you're, you're, you know, it, there might be systems in place in the world. You just are totally beyond your control. It's a complete nonsense to well, say. Well, you know, G- Jesus took on everybody's sins, so that's the obvious example. Yeah, it's 
it's setting yourself up as some sort of messiah thing. Like, it, it, there's no way that he would apply that principle generally through life. And as, as if you blame yourself for dickheads abusing you on social media, taking responsibility for that, it's just a nonsensical, stupid idea mixed in with a bunch of woo and a bit of Jesus thing. It's, it's, it's kind of what's in there, isn't it, Joe? It's sort of... I find it quite unimpressive and I find it done as a way of trying to achieve gravitas that just isn't there. It's, I find him quite shallow and he's really got a mindset of, well, I'm Indigenous, my people had their land stolen and were abused and that's my fight. And without recognising nuance... He's a very he's really into blanket statements of of my people. Mate, there'd be a thousand different views in the indigenous community, but I just don't ever hear him acknowledging the nuance of the different views. There's a thousand different views in the white community, but we're all just to stand it's all black, well, it's all white. His his mother was white. Yes. So does he then say my community for the white people? No. Uh, and, and, so, and, and, and try to speak for the white people? No. I find him quite divisive. I find him referring to my people as special. And when you talk about my people have a can teach the world how to love. Well, I just thought that was a religion. Well, what, what? The rest of us don't know how to. Indigenous people have a special ability to love. Well, no, no, I took that as meaning Christians. Because, you know, Jesus was love and therefore all Christians can teach the world. You know, when when you make a statement that's positive about one group, it's potentially negative about the groups that you omit. And, you know, if I was to say white people could teach Indigenous people about how to love... What would you think? Bloody racist. But when it's flipped the other way, oh, that's all acceptable. But it's not acceptable. It's divisive. It's setting up Indigenous people as different to the rest. He evokes Martin Luther King there. But Martin Luther King was about drawing everybody into the tent. He was about equality, not about special rights. He was just trying to get black people the same rights as white people, not extra mm. rights. And he was saying, we're all the same. Your skin doesn't matter. It's the content of your character. He, he's sort of drawing on Martin Luther King, trying to set himself up as some Martin Luther King. And the Christianity goes hand in hand with that as well. There's Martin Luther King being a Although Martin, preacher. Martin Luther King wasn't exactly a, a, a blameless practice what man. he preached. Yeah. Yeah. Slept around a bit is what you're saying. Same. Mm-hmm. I just find him, I, no doubt his intentions are, are honest and he wants to help. You know, he's, he's made a very simple decision in life about Indigenous people, downtrodden, fight for Indigenous people, special rights, without really understanding how best to go about it and drawing everybody in together for equality. And the other thing, of course... Zero mention of class. So, so I find that 
you know, in the comments that have happened, people talk about him having acted with grace and good on you, Stan. And okay, I can I can feel sorry for the guy for having been subjected to abuse, and that just shouldn't happen, of course. But he's not beyond criticism, and his role for the Indigenous community, I don't think, is helpful. And I don't find him impressive at all. But hey, that's just me. So that was sort of my thoughts on on it. But yeah, I, I find he makes broad statements that just are nonsensical and and papers over it with with woo and Christianity and spiritualism and and then walks away. Like I read the articles, various articles that he writes, and it's just a mishmash of ideas that don't actually run together very well. So for people who think he's the... Deepak Chopra? Yes, there's a lot of, yes, there's a bit of that in it. Yeah. It's so slippery, it's like nailing smoke to the wall. So, yeah. Look through my notes of different things that we've said about Stan in the past. One idea, I, or one thing I just came across recently was, like, the guy's quite a hawk when it comes to China. So there was an article that he wrote about China and there was a review of it by a guy called Mobo Gao, G-A-O, get Mobo Gao? I don't know. Anyway, that guy's an academic, written lots of books and papers about Chinese studies. He's about the Cultural Revolution, remembering socialist China, the history of China, and his latest book, Constructing China, Clashing Views of the People's Republic, examines how and why different categories of people have different views of China. So that guy looked at one of Stan's articles on China, and he made the point that you know, we've got problems in our relationship between Australia and China. What we really need is good understanding of the issues to help us sort out our mess with China. And he says, you know, Stan Grant's recent article demonstrates that our media's knowledge of China is less than adequate. So he says, so the reason why he looked at Stan Grant's article was that firstly, Stan Grant is an articulate and experienced journalist with an international profile and a respectable reputation. Secondly, he's actually worked in China, Stan Grant. He worked for CNN, lived in Beijing 2005 to 2008, and then again from 2010 to 2013. And he's been prominent talking about China in the ABC, SBS, hosted Q&A, which often talks about China. And he was also part of the ABC China Tonight program. And in the essay that this guy's criticising that Stan Grant wrote, Grant states that race sits at the heart of understanding China. According to him, China describes AUKUS as a race-based military bloc of white countries. Stan Grant goes on to declare, the Chinese Communist Party has a deep racial consciousness. It is there in the reminder to people never to forget the hundred years of humiliation at the hands of foreign powers, of white powers. And this author says, it's common knowledge, however, that it was the white West that inspired China's Communist Party ideology. Karl Marx was certainly white, and Lenin and his colleagues who led the October Revolution have always been considered white by Chinese people. And... It's basically an article that criticises 
Dan Grant for trying to understand China's position as a racist position. He basically calls BS on it and says bullshit. And I think Dan Grant is a bit like a guy with a hammer. Everything he sees is a nail. And mm. for him, everything he sees is, is a racist. race mm. issue. Mm. This one was something we did, ah, oh, would have been way back maybe in the episodes 100 to 200, somewhere back there, like going back five years now, I guess. And I lost the link, but I had the, had the, the material, but I can't say who wrote it. It was an open letter to Stan Grant. It says, I am an Australian of migrant background and mixed ethnicity. I grew up in largely ethnic communities in Melbourne's north and have lived in Darwin and Townsville as well. I have observed you in the media making various statements which I personally take issue with, in particular the divisive nature of your rhetoric and the monopoly on human suffering that you seem to claim for your people. No one in this nation denies the horrors that the Indigenous people suffered at the hands of European colonialists, nor does anyone expect you not to feel internally scarred by these events. The most important factor in a healing process is moving forward. Many of us in the migrant community understand things of this nature and I would like to share some of them with you. He goes on, I must first address your them and us rhetoric. And I think this is true. Like he talks about my people and them and, and us quite a lot. I have observed you link the current circumstances of Indigenous people to past atrocities with statements such as, for so many of my people... Aboriginal people, there is a deep, deep wound that comes from the time of dispossession. As the author says, as if the tribalistic sentiments of this statement were not bad enough, you feel the need to foster guilt and resentment among people who cannot change the past, as if this will somehow change the present circumstances of Indigenous Australians. Fueling resentment does not lead to change. Only positivity in the face of adversity can do this. This is a tried and true method for the healing process. He goes on, because in his statement he said, someone's suffering was the scaffolding upon which you built your prosperity. Well, that's what Stan Grant was saying about white people's prosperity was built on black people's suffering. And this guy as a migrant saying, hang on. I think that was a good article. It's in the show notes for the patrons who get them and... Just not me, somebody else at least, calling out the divisive nature of Stan's rhetoric. Mm. Yeah, I like the, he refers to Morgan Freeman, and I've seen the Morgan Freeman quote. Yes. Where he says, Black History Month, why are we celebrating that? When's White History Month? If, yes. we, want, if we want to stop being racist, we need to stop talking about race. Yes. He says here, my sentiments are firmly aligned with those of Morgan Freeman, who, when asked about how to stop racism, replied, stop talking about it. I'm going to stop calling you a white man. I'm going to ask you to stop calling me a black man. We've played that clip in the past. I might find it and throw it at the end of this podcast as a sort of a sign-off clip. Yeah, if you want to move forward, bring everybody together rather than keep pushing them apart. So just... Yeah. Constantly looking back, you're mm. never going to be able to move forward. Yeah. If you've always got, if you've always got your, if you've always got your eyes on the rear view mirror, you're never going to see what's in front of you. Yep. And uh, you know, I I sort of make this comparison at different times. Like, 
My father was a prisoner of war, Changi Prison, Burma Railway, the whole thing. One of the few mm. to survive. I don't inherit anything out of that in terms of a, a claim of suffering. Mm. And I don't have a, I don't inherit a grievance against modern day Japanese people. It was nothing to do with them. Mm. It's, it's, it's history. It's, it's not something that is to be blamed on the current generations. And in terms Other of Japan, than... and it's not something for me to take advantage of as an inherited sufferer of some Ooh. sort. I, I think we need to learn from the mm. atrocities of the past and, and make sure they don't happen again. Hmm. But absolutely. What were so, the circumstances that led up to that so that we don't do it again? Exactly yeah. right. Yeah. But not as a, as a blame game. So, yeah, what else is there to say? The only other thing I'd say is he's not a good compare. He's a terrible compare of that show, Q&A. He interrupts people. It, it may well be that he's got that job because of his multiculturalism, if you like, because it's it not, not very good at his job from what <laughs> I've observed. But he keeps getting a Guernsey for these different roles where he seems to me to be quite hopeless and there'd be so many other better people to do it. Anyway, you know, fixing historical injustice is a dangerous practice, even if you do achieve it. Anyone looked at Israel lately? <laughs> it, yeah. I mean, that, that's... I, I understand... I understand the feeling that the Jews said we can't trust another nation to look after us. Mm. We need our own state. But the idea that it had to be Palestine because God had given it to them. Mm. Mm. Yeah, and yeah, pushed out yeah, a bunch was... of people who were then living there already. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and so, I mean, I know that and, and... The, the history of the Zionists, at uh, one stage they talked about buying an area in the Pilbara. Mm. Yes, um, they did. And also Madagascar, I think. Right. Well, Madagascar yeah. was was Hitler's first plan was to dump them all down there. Yeah, but I thought that it actually that had some legs as well. And and the Zionist whatever had talked to Australia, and had got fairly far along the the road about building a a, a land in the Pilbara. Mm. So there were a number of places that were mooted. Mm. Mm. Yeah, that wouldn't surprise me. It's. It's one of those things, had you, if you had your time over again, would you actually support the recreation of the State of Israel? I wouldn't because they have treated the Palestinians so appallingly badly mm. that I just think to myself, well, you, you bastards don't deserve your own country. If, if, they had, if they were to do it anywhere, they should have done it in Germany. Yeah. As as, as, as a, a retribution for the yeah. yes exactly they should the, have they should have carved out a section of Germany and said that, this if you're going to do it anywhere Israel. yeah because otherwise you're just dispossessing people yeah. who yeah. have got nothing to do with it essentially at least in some sense the in well, some they, sense the German know, people would have to actually they, pay they would for have been it. German farmers or whatever who would have lost their land who had you know who were not sympathetic to the Nazi cause at all and they would have been collateral damage. But it, this is the difficulty in trying to fix historical wrongs 
when you've got several generations in between. Oh, but I mean that was it's at the easy. time. <coughs> yes, correct. So, so it would have been yeah. punishing those people who, maybe not Directly actively but passively supported yeah. Yeah. the Nazi regime. Yeah. 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 So, um, I remember years and years ago, I heard a, a interview with someone that had been a prosecutor, and he said one of the, one of the things that struck him was he said, "Well, there was this sort of glib sort of." conversation that was going across the desk and they're saying, well, he was only responsible for two deaths. You know, he said, you know, if you actually looked at the number of people that were responsible for two people being murdered, mm-hmm. then that was an incredible number of people that you'd have to, have to put into the gallows, you know. It was... Yeah, I mean, look, of the people who worked in the concentration camps... Yeah. It was a minority, a very, very small minority that actually were even prosecuted. Mm, exactly. It, it was the worst. It was the most monstrous that got yeah. pulled up. And the average guard was just ignored. Yeah. Mm. You know, just back to this open letter, one of the things he says here was, nothing can be done about our past, Dan, and it's not appropriate to judge a nation by its past sins. Every civilization has committed crimes against humanity at some point in its history. A far more accurate way of judging a society is by which crimes and bad practices it has abandoned. Reform and progression are what makes society great. And there was somewhere here, I can't find it, but it was about criticising him for his refusal to sort of talk about class, but I think it was in the China one. Let me try and find it. It's interesting. People talk about how racist Australia is, but I was talking to an Indian colleague who said, you know, of all the countries he'd lived and worked in, Australia was one of the least racist. Mm. Really? Because... So many of us are immigrants. I think it's not abnormal. Mm. Yeah. It's one of those things like, you know, it's, you know, the best Marigold Hotel and that sort of stuff that was set up around a a retirement village in, in India, you know, and they were saying that they had to, they were talking about they had a telephone factory and that sort of stuff where they were a call centre. Mm-hmm. And they were saying, well, they were used to hearing the Indian accent in Britain. And they were also saying exactly the same thing in Australia, used to hearing the Indian accent. Mm. You know. There's been criticism of the ABC for not supporting Stan Grant enough. And uh, Patricia Cavallis, who's a mornings presenter, was talking about the 150 mentions in News Corp publications that were critical of Stan Grant and... Quoting a Max Walden who says the sustained conservative media campaign included more than 150 mentions of the ABC's coronation coverage in the pages of the Australian and on Sky News over the past fortnight. So they were very critical of Stan Grant and what he had to say about the coronation. Patricia Cavallis is saying, yeah, dirty rotten News Corp. And Ronnie Salting Twitter makes the point well, why on earth does the ABC and your program in particular insist on platforming journalists from the Murdoch, Murdoch outlets? The only way to send the message that enough is enough is to treat them with the same content they treat the ABC. It does my head in. The ABC on panel shows continues to have News Corp journalists and editors pontificating. I was listening yeah. to a late night live. Again, it was talking about the G7 and 
how they had a quad meeting on the side. And she was like the political editor for the Courier Mail, the Advertiser, the Daily Telegraph. And she was just spouting all these things about Chinese aggression and the need for the West to counter it. There was no pushback at all by the presenter. Philip Adams was away. It was some other lady in charge. Just happens all the time. It was just accepted. Oh, yes, Chinese aggression. Got to do something about that. Does my head in. ABC continues to invite News Corp talking heads onto their programs. Yeah. Edith Dutton came out and said some stuff about The Voice. Hmm? Dutton said The Voice would have an Orwellian effect where all Australians are equal, but some Australians are more equal than others. He described it as a symptom of the madness of identity politics, claiming it would re-racialise our nation. This is quoting Dutton. The great progress of the 20th century civil rights movement was the path to eradicate difference, to judge each other on the content of our character, not the colour of our skin, he said. Can we judge him on the content of his character? (laughs) Yes, we can. (laughs) And he ends up quite poor. This voice, as proposed by the Prime Minister, promotes difference. That's a good point. But people will say, in response to that, that this is just disinformation and misinformation. But there's there's kernels of truth in what he's saying there. Well, I think the only thing he's actually got a kernel of t- truth there was where he said that it's just going to promote differences. Yes. Which is, I understand, that's probably the major complaint with it. So yeah. somebody and- at work sent me a, oh, my God, the voice is just a slippery slope what they're really after is, and made all these claims and said, oh, there's this freedom of information request. So I looked at the freedom of information request and it's very, very difficult to read, but apparently it was a meeting of a group of Aboriginals sort of a national committee. Uh, And there were some interesting things there. They were pushing that the statement about Australia was Aboriginal first to white man came and stole it, shouldn't Mm. be in the preamble because then it can be dismissed. It needed to be in the body of the constitution. Mm. Uh, So so there's some interesting things in there, but there's also, Mm. I think people have been picking through this, looking for things to take out of context and misquote. Yeah. And Dutton has been speaking shit about, you know, not enough detail and we need longer to talk about it. You know, quite a lot of crap in there, but I'll give him something in terms of, what he said there, the people who criticise him to say, oh, that's misinformation, but they don't really deal with the issue as such. And, you know, you could say, yes, it does actually set up a re-racialisation, but that's a good thing in this case because of X, Y, Z, and we just need to do it. That would be an honest response, Mm -hmm. but they don't do that. They just say, oh, no, it doesn't but without actually just like a little child saying, oh, no, it doesn't. What they really need to do is say, well, yeah, it does, but that's okay in this instance. Dishonesty, I think, in not dealing with the substance from the opponents of Dutton. Mm. I think the reason why I actually support it is because that, you know, how it tore apart ATSIC and all that type of thing, he just completely got rid of it overnight. It would be a hell of a lot harder for them to completely dismantle this if it was in the Constitution. Was that sick a good thing? 
Did Atsik need no, to be done Atsik, Atsik, Atsik needed to be taken down a peg or 12, <coughs> but I don't think it was actually worth it just to completely destroy it and replace mm. it with nothing, which is what they did, mm. you know? Yeah. Let's just look at opinion polls. We've got support for The Voice currently sitting on 59% against 41%. So that's been relatively steady for the last few What's polls. What's the margin of error? I don't know on that one, Joe. Because, yeah, it's, it's quite often poll. when they when they <coughs> poll prior to an election, they go, oh, mm. yeah, there's been a 3% rise, and they're going, but the, the margin of error is plus or minus 5%. And you yeah, go, yeah, I think... so in other words, it might not be a rise at all. Yes. I think this is kind of a 2% one, I think, commonly with the essential poll. So still an essential poll, moving away from Indigenous matters for a moment or two or perhaps for the rest of the episode. Support for the Republic. New topic. Scott, mm. if there were a referendum on Australia becoming a republic, how would you vote? 54% say yes, they want a republic. 46% no. Yeah, I think that that number will change as as the public gets closer and that sort of stuff actually, as as the question and that sort of stuff gets asked more and more and they start to actually really reflect on it. They think to themselves, you know, King Charles doesn't represent me. You know, they'll Mm. have a, you know, there was a very interesting photo that the Australian Republican movement put up on Instagram. It was, what was it called? The three generations of Australia's next head of state. And it was Charles, William and George, is it? Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. I, and they just had all three of them there. And I thought to myself, yeah, that's a bloody good point. You know, mm. it's just mm. all three generations are just sitting there right in front of us, you know. I think the government's feeling is let's deal with the voice before we're oh, we absolutely. dealing with the absolutely. Republic. Absolutely. And that's... that is exactly what they've done. They've deliberately yeah. put this on the back burner. Yeah. So... 54% in favour, 46% against. Dear listener, if you were to think of gender, who do you think would be more in favour of a republic, male gender or female gender? Think about that one because I'm about to tell you the answer. And according to this poll at least, males, 59% in favour. Female, only 49%. So the majority of females still want republic that surprised me you mean still want a monarchy yes still want a monarchy thank you joe yeah that really surprised me actually i, I thought it was mm. much closer on that i thought to end up at 54 at each, at each of them but no you don't yeah and the other one where they looked at it from an age basis and this one Shocking. makes sense yeah, obviously the younger people more likely to want a republic. 18 to 34 was, it was 60%. But in the 55-plus category, only 46% want a republic. So younger ones want a republic, older ones don't. And the final breakdown in this was by voting intention. So, again, no surprises here. Greens voters, 71% want a republic. And the coalition voters, only 39% want a republic. The Labor and the other independents, 60% and 62%. So 
No surprise on that one. The gender one was a surprising one. So a, a coalition voter, old and female, is the candidate for wanting to keep the I mean, the, the, the minor queen. parties slash independents, you've got such a broad political spectrum in there. Correct. You've got... You've got one nation and you've got... Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, now one nation you would expect would be supporting of the would be supportive of the monarchy. I would say so. Yeah. Yeah. Dear listener, if you are listening to this podcast on your app, you should see these pictures on your phone because I do chapters and these images should be coming up. If you don't see them, swap over to a different app. Most of you are on iPhone and you're just if you're using the native iPhone app, you should see these graphs and things that I use in the podcast. Coming up on the screen, have a look at those, provided you're not driving. What else have I got here? That's it for Essential Poll. That was the Republic. Nice article from John Menadu himself in the John Menadu blog, which I continue to really enjoy and support with a donation. At the moment, Australia trying to revive its trade with China. And he just makes the point, how can we, on the one hand, be involved in all these discussions with the USA where we're saying the biggest enemy we've got is China, we've got to buy all this stuff because they're going to invade us, and then on the other hand talk about how important it is that we're friends so that we can trade and just the duplicity of it, he says... There is a massive contradiction between stabilising our trade relations with China and our casting of it as a mortal military threat. That position is not sustainable. We are planning to support an American war on China, yet expect China to remain a loyal trading partner. Penny Wong and Don Farrell can hardly keep saying they are stabilising the relationship with China when Richard Miles is out there almost every day dog-whistling about the China threat. But perhaps he's been on the Washington drip feed so long he doesn't understand the immense contradiction in our relations with China and the enormous risks we are running. So nice article there from him. Just talking about sanctions. So a bit of a statistic that in the 1960s, only 4% of countries were subject to sanctions from the US. And today, oh, so the US, EU, today 27% of countries are subject to sanctions. So since 1960, 4%, today 27%. And they're not just minor countries, they actually account for 29% of the world's GDP. So countries producing almost a third of the world's GDP are subject to sanctions from the US and other countries, most of which are illegal. So that's going on at the same time. What else have we got? It came out about Price Waterhouse. Yeah, that was a consultancy disgusting firm. thing. Given <laughs> confidential information about what international tax dodgers are doing and asked to provide consultancy advice for the government, and then the partner involved in it uses that confidential information to then advise multinationals how to get around yeah. the laws that they're actually that they had that they got, 
they yes. got they got paid a consultancy fee to help design. Yeah. Ah, uh, it's just shocked. I tell you, shocked. Yeah. It's. <laughs> You know, surely this would be the wake-up call for the government thinking to so itself, we've got to actually reinvest in our public service. Indeed. And in this yeah. article, it, it just in terms of dollar figures, so for 2021-2022, Australia spent $21 billion on external contractors and consultants. $21 billion. Hmm. That's equivalent to 54,000 full-time workers. And the actual number of public servants is 144,000. Yeah. So, uh, so more than a third of the cost of our regular payroll was spent on these consultants who are overpaid and they produce reports that are withheld from us that we don't even get to see, they're not accountable for them. If the report doesn't say what people want, it gets shelved. Yeah, PwC, KPMG, EY and Deloitte are just raking in money and uh, and then on the flip side, charging clients and advising them how to get around the laws that they're consulting on. Outrageous. Will this Labor government do anything about it? No, no, probably not. They get too much in donations. It's pathetic. <sighs> Just a little comment to Matthew James. I'm not wearing a Parramatta Eels jersey. It's a Canterbury Ugly or something like that. It's just a bit of everything. But thank you very much for noticing. Okay. Uh, yeah, we'd well, be far better spending most of that money on a regular public servant. There Excellent. will be odd occasions where you might need particular expertise, but... You just pay more by using consultants. Mm. All right. We see some crazy things in America with police violence and we think, how does it get to that stage? Yeah. Meanwhile, in Australia, we had the event last week <laughs> where police tasered a 95-year-old woman. She had it coming. <laughs> She was 43 kilos. She was walking on a Zimmer frame. And, you know, apparently the, uh, she refused to drop a steak knife and they tasered her for that. If they couldn't disarm and de-escalate without resorting to taser, then they shouldn't have the bloody job. They allege she advanced at them at a slow pace using a walking frame. She's five foot two, 43 kilos, frail, 95-year-old. Yeah. And, of course, having been tasered, she's fallen, hit her head and sustained life-threatening injuries. Mm. Outrageous. It's really bloody crook, isn't it? You know, it's... Mm. I suppose I... they're probably patting themselves in the back saying, oh, at least we didn't shoot her. I think they've recognised they made a mistake. I don't know. I look at groups of police in the mall or other places. Those guys are weighed down by so much gear. And they're often overweight. I think, how do I, like, these guys would never chase anybody down and apprehend them. I, I had an argument with a friend who had been a cop in the UK, was a cop over here, about whether or not they should be armed because they're not in the UK. 
Mm. And he said, oh, yeah, absolutely. We need to carry pistols. He'd got involved arresting somebody, and the guy had given <coughs> him a kicking, managed to get him to the ground and given him a kicking. Right. A- and he was injured, severely injured mm. from that. And he said, if I'd been able to get to my service weapon, I would have shot the guy. Wow. And I'm... You know, you're just you're bringing a level of lethality into this mm. that just isn't available, and yet UK cops managed to survive without it. Mm. Now I understand it's slightly different. Tyranny's a distance. If you're out in the middle of whoop whoop, you do need a gun. Yep. Yeah, but. Do they really need a firearm just for patrolling the streets? Well, you know, that's it. yeah, that's the difference. It's one of those things that I can understand that, and I agree with you there. If they're out, if they're out in the, if they're out the moon, if they're out in the middle of nowhere, I think they should have easy access to a firearm. But do they need to actually brandish it? No, I don't. Mm. You know. Anyway, just in terms of police bashing uh, in mm-hmm. Singapore at Changi Airport. A 40-year-old Portuguese passenger attacked a robot police officer on duty with a luggage cart. In the end, he was sentenced to four weeks in prison. (laughs) What's a robot police officer do? There was a picture of him. Mm -hmm. It looked kind of like that robot in Lost in Space, the sort of Danger Will Robinson type thing. I don't don't know what he was doing, but anyway, got attacked with a luggage cart. Mm. Remember Robert Kennedy Jr.? Yeah. And we spoke good. about him as a I'm bit trying of a, to forget him. Mm, won't be able to, I don't think, as an odd one in mm-hmm. that he was a sort of anti-vaxxer type with some crazy ideas. One of the disinformation dozen. Yes. And I mentioned about his voice mm-hmm. and how he kind of was almost... Pauline Hanson-like in the nervousness in his voice. And I thought, maybe he's got laryngitis or something, but he wasn't, it wasn't an authoritative voice and it was a bit of a turn-off for me in listening to him. And I got a message from one of the patrons called Just Another Pinker Fan who found mm. this article and according to ABC News, Robert F. Kennedy suffers from spasmodic dysphonia a specific form of an involuntary movement disorder that affects the voice box. It's not life-threatening, but can affect one's quality of life. And the disease didn't hit him until he was 43. He used to have a strong voice. But as a result of this, a mild tremble for a couple of years. That's how it began, but it gets worse. So there we go. Guy's got it's probably a caused by a vaccine. Box. Or maybe a, maybe a vaccine would fix it. Maybe. Mm, yeah. If you ever meet an anti-vaxxer, tell them they've developed a vaccine that's effective against chemtrails. Oh, okay. That, that'll that Watch their them. brain break. Yes, a vaccine that's effective against chemtrails. Yeah. Yep. You know, the Victorian Liberals are in a shambles mm. and Dictator Dan's killing them. Mm-hmm. And former Victorian Premier Jeff Kennett has a solution. He's back to call to reinstate national service because this also came from the Victorian young liberals. Mm. Scott, 
Am I right in thinking you were in favour of yeah, national I'm service? Yeah, I'm in favour of national service, but that doesn't mean that I, you know, I at that night and that sort of stuff, you were saying, what would you do if you were a benevolent dictator? And I said I would have a yeah. national service, but I would not allow our conscripts to serve abroad. And I also said that you were also saying that you were talking about education and that type of thing. I also agree with you on the education. So if you've got a very strong education system and that type of thing, then it shouldn't matter that if you've got to actually go and do one or two years in the military at the end of your schooling career and that type of thing, that wouldn't be a problem. So do you think it's a winning policy for the for the no, Libs in Victoria? No, it, it's not because, you know, it's. Uh, I had to agree with the boys from the Bertuda Advocate where the other morning when I was listening to them. They said that this is a something the young Liberals have decided to do, so force people to actually spend time with them. <laughs> <laughs> well, the question is who's going to pay for it and what are they going to do? Well, it's it's one of those things you've got to actually, it would actually cost a fair bit of money. So you'd have to have a very long conversation with the taxpayer and that type of thing. You'd have to, you'd have to accept it that it was paid for by the Commonwealth and the Commonwealth would have it, that would, it would actually cost the Commonwealth a hell of a lot of money. Then you'd have to have an argument, you know, do you have it for six months, 12 months or two years? And I also agree that it should be men and women because I do not believe that you should be that you should. I'm saying that oh, it's only for the men. I, I think, think they're trying to argue. I think they're trying to argue it'll save money because it's likely to reduce the number of Australians on unemployment benefits somehow because <laughs> yeah. they're going to be taught that stuff that means they'll nonsense. never be unemployed. Crazy. How, how, the only way it's going to actually lead to a reduction in unemployment is if you have a number of blokes and that sort of stuff that complete their military service and that type of thing, and they think to themselves, this isn't a bad life, I might stay in the military. Yeah. You know, it, it could happen. You know, it's one of those things. My old man had to do it too back in the days when they called it the Citizens Military Force, the old CMF, yeah. you know. Yeah, it didn't hurt him, did it? Made a man of him. I don't Good know about that, but it's just one of those All things. Right. He had to do it. And uh, I think it was back then he had to do six months full time. And then after that, mm. they went into the went into the reserves after that. Right. <laughs> Otherwise yeah. known as the SAS. No, the SAS is the, is the no, special no, no, air the, services. The reserves are known as the SAS because they fight on Saturdays and Sundays. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> You're so cryptic, Joe, at times. All right. I've got yeah, a but, other I, things, but I do not agree with Jeff Kennett there because I think Kennett's just, uh, he is the human headline and all that type of thing. He's just trying to make a name for himself regardless okay, you know, of the fact that he's no longer got a name. It's the only, it's only, it's a policy that's strictly only possible for a benevolent dictator who hasn't got to worry about winning an election. Exactly. Because you know, you, you've a, got this. A good idea thwarted by democracy, Scott. Well, it is because Finland has a compulsory military service, mm. as does the as do, no Sweden has only just got rid of it. France has still got compulsory military service, and I believe the Netherlands still do too, and Germany as well. Singapore and Singapore Israel. Got compulsory military service. and Israel, Israel does too. Yeah. Now. Israel is slightly Israel, different though. Israel, Israel is Israel, actually at war. Yeah, and <laughs> Israel is going to continue to be at war because they're going to continue to antagonise their closest neighbours. Yeah. Um, Ukraine's Isra got it too. Sorry. Ukraine's got it as well, yeah. Yeah, of course, because yeah. they've just been invaded. So mm. they've got no choice but to do it. Yeah. It's one of those things I just, you know. South Korea, according to Matthew. 
Yeah, yes, exactly. Again, with North Korea just across the border. Yeah. I, mm. I think there would be more value in a paid formal SES equivalent. So an emergency service, a, a, a labor corps doing civil mm. works and doing emergency. Mm. I, I think there's probably that would be better than training people up to be soldiers necessarily. Yeah, yeah you probably got a point there. If you made the SES a compulsory thing that everyone had to do, that wouldn't be a problem. And then you could have a you then you then have this backbone of people that have been trained and that sort of stuff that could be called up and in the event of a flood or something like that, they can go down and help. Mm-hmm. Mm. Mm. The other thing is you could just make it attractive so that people would want to do it. What the you SES? To, yes, you need people for these things. Well, they don't pay them right now. Mm. Yeah, it's a volunteer. Mm. Yeah, but uh, say for example, if you work in the public service, then. If you take time off to do that work, you still get paid your public service pay. Mm. You don't eat into your sick pay or holiday pay. So Yeah, which I agree with. Yeah. So, yeah. All right. I'm going to call it. Oh, James, you've just joined us and we're just going to leave you, James, <laughs> in the chat room. Andrew said in the chat room, apparently my dad in Nasho, short for National Service, somehow managed to set up an illegal wine trade in the barracks. There we go. We've got a few other topics. We'll leave them for next week. Yeah. All right. Gentlemen, unless you had something really pressing that you wanted to say, get off your chest. No, I don't think so. I've already vented about the National Service. There we go. All right. There we go. Stan Grant, good luck in your recuperation May God be with you. Five, I'm putting money on him trying to move into some political role at some stage in the near future. See mm. what happens. Mm. All right, gentlemen, anyone out there, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week. Bye for now. And it's a good night from me. And it's a good night from him. Good night. <laughs>